Welcome to our second episode in Season 2 of Victim Meet Advocate. In this episode, you may notice an unfamiliar voice, and that is because we finally filled our part-time position. Yay! Welcome to the team, Vince. We are so glad to have you. Thanks for having me, guys. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month. And this month started out in 2006 as a week-long prevention and education event that was expanded in 2010 to encompass the entire month. And I personally think that's because not only were we seeing a rise in these cases of teen domestic violence, but also because social media was really beginning to take off. Um, Chelsea, what do you think kind of sparked that decision for them to extend it? I feel like that's probably, you know, the more cases that we're hearing and seeing. I know later on we're going to talk about One Love, but, you know, that's the whole basis was, like, teen dating violence became lethal and people are losing their lives and teens don't really know the awareness and I think they pay attention more when it's a longer period of time to learn about something than just crammed into one week. And what about you, Vince? I think, like, both of you guys touched on with a rising number of cases, but also with the social media the being you know, able to reach more people on a broader scale and extending it for a longer period of time brings more awareness to it. Yeah, definitely. So before we dive in, let's first explain what teen dating, teen dating violence actually is. So it involves teens, obviously, so that's our 13 to 18 population. It can also sometimes stretch to 19. Um, TDV is violence within intimate partner relationships of teenagers. So according to the CDC, nearly 1 in 11 females and 1 in 14 males have reported experiencing physical dating violence within a year's time. And another interesting t statistic from DoSomething.org mentioned how violent behavior often begins between the 6th and 12th grade. And further, 72% of all 13 and 14-year-olds are in dating relationships. And I'm going to be honest, that statistic kind of surprised me a little bit because when I was coming along, we had maybe three or four couples that were actually dating within our class in around 8th grade. Now, I, granted, I did grow up in a school that had about 84 people in our graduating class, but still, it seemed like it was such a lower number back then. Um, what about you guys? Do you think that, like, in your experience, there were a lot of uh, teen couples in your graduating classes? Yes, I went to a very large school with like 600 people in my graduating class. So yeah, there was lots of people in relationships. I mean, I think that was the, pretty much the way we all interacted with each other. Mm -hmm. I think it was always based off somebody's in a relationship. I mean, there was fights all the time, like domestic violence. Like now that I like look back, like a lot of our relationships were toxic. I mean, even ones that I was in as a teenager. So what about you, Ben? Yeah, I went to three different high schools, um, kind of all throughout the U.S. Um, they were all pretty big schools, between like 600 and probably 1,000 in our graduating classes. Um, and most of the population of the school was probably in a relationship or some kind of situationship, um, where that was a big part of like the social dynamic of the school. Um, so moving on to what are some signs of teen dating violence? So some of the signs can be um, sometimes hard to be noticed when it comes to teenagers. So often they're going through something either mental, emotional, and biological changes during this important time. So things like acting out, mood swings, and the synthesis of disorders such as bulimia, depression, or anorexia can also sometimes be blamed uh, on things other than teen dating violence. So some other signs include low self-esteem, constantly checking their cell phone when they're out with family and friends, and also some isolation, whether that's voluntary isolation or not. 
Yeah, so it can be really hard to kind of figure out, is this the result of teen dating violence or just normal teenage things going on? Um, so let's talk a second about reporting. So according to One Love Foundation, only 33% of teens have ever reported the abuse they were experiencing. Um, why do you guys think that is? I personally feel like there's always kind of like that nervousness with teens. You know, they, they don't want to get in trouble and they, you know, don't want to limit themselves. Chelsea, what do you think? No, I agree with what you just said. I think that it's it's hard to talk to your parents about something like that, especially when you're a teenager and you probably don't understand everything that's happening in the first place. So I think it's just hard to tell your parents you don't want to get in trouble, you don't want to get that other person in trouble, you don't want your parents to limit you and your privileges that you have to like go out and your freedom. And um, do we think there might be a gender disparity here? Like perhaps maybe girls are less likely to report or boys? What do you think, Vince? Um, I think it can go both ways. I think it just depends on the temperament of the person. I think retroactively, I think it's probably been a little bit uh, more biased towards girls being a little bit more hesitant to report. Mm -hmm. um, but also on the side of, you know, men at any age, right, are generally less likely to report things like this when they do happen. Oh yeah, definitely. So now that we've given you all this information, we kind of wonder what can we do? So first off, as parents, you can be supported and start the conversation. So 2022's theme is talk about it. And I cannot stress this enough to start this conversation. Um, many kids, like we just mentioned, don't report because they're in fear of getting in trouble and they're in fear of, you know, limiting themselves. And um, I think back often to Diane Cho. So if you listen to our Southside Strangler episode, one of the reasons that she didn't report that she was having these problems with the stalkers because she was afraid her parents were going to limit her from being able to go out with her friends. Um, and I think that it's important as a parent to know that if you can't be that person where, you know, because it is hard for, like Chelsea said, for kids to talk to their parents about this, set up a trusted individual that you know the kid can talk to. I know for me, I feel so much better opening up to my aunts than I do my mom, you know, because there's just that relationship there. So just be sure that your child has those resources so that, and to also let them know that there's a point where there can be secrets, you know, and things that they may not want to share, but when it comes to their safety, they need to reach out immediately. Absolutely. All right, so moving on to some things as onlookers that we can do. So if you have a friend, relative, or a child who is experiencing this, um, if you actually scroll back to our last season, we have a great episode for Domestic Violence Awareness Month that goes into gr great detail on how you can help a friend or a loved one who's experiencing and get them help. So I do think there's a difference though between these. Uh, the victims of this are teenagers and most often parents are the ones who are going to be doing the intervention. Um, but how do you guys think this changes the way to go about intervening in the violence itself? Um, I sort of feel like it, it may not just be the parents. I know that that's typically who would do it, but it might be the teachers at the school or the counselors because those are the people that are gonna be seeing that interaction and that violence happening and are probably gonna be more likely to recognize it before a parent probably ever will recognize mm -hmm. it or see it. and. I do think that like parents, like one thing that I think we mentioned before, like having that conversation is like to remember to be calm about it because that person is also already going through trauma and you don't want to amp them up. But I do think that like the, the parent needs to either be calm enough to have that conversation and intervene and sort of be able to explain why these red flags are a thing or have that trusted adult that person knows be able to explain that. I think it's different with adults. It's like a random stranger, like me as an advocate can go to a random adult and explain domestic violence and it's easier for the, like we can have that conversation. I think with a teenager, it needs to be more less preachy and yeah. more like people they can, they know they can trust and have that conversation with. And I would definitely agree. I think that one of the things that I noticed that seems to be an issue is that when you're talking to a friend, there really isn't much 
control you can have over the situation because they are their own person and they are allowed to make their own decisions. But when you're a parent, it can be a little harder because you're supposed to be in this somewhat role of power and you're supposed to be setting an example for your child. So it can be hard to know when's the time to intervene and you definitely don't want the situation to ex escalate anymore. Absolutely. Um, so what do you do if your child is the one that's actually perpetuate, is actually just doing the violence? Let's go there. Keep the conversation open, seek therapy for root of behavior, and know that it doesn't make you a bad parent or your kid is a bad kid. Look for the signs, constant jealousy, making jokes at their significant other's expense, and isolation. It's important to be aware and tuned into the atmosphere that surrounds your child's relationship and step in when necessary. Definitely. So at this point in the episode, we would like to take up a little case study and kind of discuss the role a victim witness would play in it. This is a trigger warning because the following content um, is a bit graphic and we're going to be discussing the murder of a teenager named Erin Castro. So to kind of start things off, um, Erin Castro was 19 when she was murdered, um, but she met the man who murdered her when she was a freshman at her high school. Um, he was very persistent that he wanted to date her and she had kind of been putting him off and just wanted to be friends with him, but by her sophomore year he had convinced her to enter into a dating relationship with him and um, the relationship started out fine as most of them do we often call this period like the grooming period because the um, abuser will love bomb the person that they're with and they will you know present to this person as they're everything they've ever wanted in a relationship and they're great um, but what that does is it allows them to draw the person in and slowly begin to isolate them from people um, and then Joshua you know it, it started out great and then when Joshua started to get more involved um, he began to be consumed by jealousy he would get very angry with her if she was hanging out with friends and he even went as far to assault one of her male friends that he felt they were too close and he actually ended up breaking his nose so the first time charges were brought against him joshua had picked aaron up from her home only to immediately become violent he punched her in the face and then pushed her from his moving car where, where he ran over her leg he then reversed and put her back into the car with intentions to cover her injuries as if nothing had happened. Erin was willing to cover for Joshua, something we often see in these relationships, but her mother was adamant that she get help. It was then that they filed charges against Joshua. So they went through the entire court process and Joshua was, was given what they call a deferred adjudication or in layman's terms, he was sent to like a probationary community service instead of his jail time. And at this point, he and Aaron were no longer communicating. However, over time, Joshua was able to kind of manipulate his way back into her life, which is not uncommon in these relationships. Um, and then on the evening of her 19th birthday, Aaron ended up in Joshua's car, no doubt perpetuated by his ability to manipulate her. Um, she was constantly checking in with her mother, you know, during the evening, letting her know she was okay. And um, at some point, her text began to grow in like her worry and her anxiety. And Aaron ended up calling her mother, who was desperate to get her daughter home safe and sound. I think she mentioned um, in the little section of Aaron's story at the Aaron Castro Foundation website that she just told her, just get out of the car, wherever you need to be, I will come and pick you up immediately. And her mother ended up um, desperately calling the sheriff's office um, for Bexar County to try to get her home. And so sadly, Aaron Castro's life was tragically cut short that evening in 2018. So in 2021, Joshua Garcia pled guilty to the charge of murder and received 35 years in prison. He was still on probation for the first incident involving Aaron and his previous time was revoked and another 20 years was added to his sentence. So Aaron's mother thinks of her every day and says that she thinks she would be thankful for the work that she does now to help spread awareness to local high schools about the dangers of teen dating violence. So if you would like to have an in, a more in-depth look at Aaron's life, be sure to check out the justiceforaaron.org um, website, which we will also have a link in our description that you guys can check out. 
So I'm sure that many of you are wondering, like always, what would victim witness be doing in this scenario where the victim advocates? Um, so as soon as the first charges were brought, victim witness would become a part of the story. We would reach out to Erin and her mother to discuss the options for protective orders and to notify them about bond hearings if there was one scheduled. We then would keep them both up to date on the court case and eventually have her meet with the assigned prosecutor to discuss what happened. Some other things we may do is connect her with resources or even give a tour of the courtroom so she would know where she was testifying and what to expect that day in court. On that note as well, like we would probably do what's called the danger assessment with her just in case Aaron was sort of feeling like, hey, I don't really think what Joshua did was that bad. Like he's still a good person, you know, he can be redeemed, that whole sort of thing. We would have done the danger assessment with her to talk about like how much at risk she, you know, she was. If Aaron was alive at that point, um, we would have done that. Um, but since Erin wasn't alive, you know, we, we would work with her mom in the same capacity. So victim witness would then come back into the story after the horrifying incident in 2018. We would be with Erin's mother and family members every step of the way through the criminal justice process by providing case updates, counseling resources, as well as just a friendly face and a hand to hold during the long, hard hearings. We would also provide Erin's family members with the option to write victim impact statements. Victim impact statements are a way for victims of crime and the survivors to express to a ruling judge how the crime has affected them physically, emotionally, financially, and mentally. Erin's mother did write an impact statement and read it aloud in court. So this episode took a pretty heavy turn, but a real, realistic one at that. Um, reflecting on February 2022's motto that we mentioned earlier, talk about it, we feel it's important to bring these stories to the forefront and to teach teenagers the warning signs as well as teaching them that it's okay to reach out for help. So with that, we'd like to lighten the air a little bit with an icebreaker like our previous episodes. So Valentine's Day is coming up, which I think it's really important that this is set in February. Um, so one of the questions we have is what is your favorite holiday? So I'll go first, my favorite holiday, by far, hands down, is Halloween. Um, I love the whole aesthetic, the whole air. I love, you know, the air getting colder after the summer, followed up by Easter, which I think is a really, really weird juxtaposition for your first and second favorite holiday. Um, Chelsea, what about you? Oh, I think my favorite holiday has to be Christmas. Only because I like gift giving. Like, I'm that person that will buy gifts and I can't keep them a secret. I have to give them to you right now. I'm just, I think it goes along the lines of like wanting to like make people happy. So, Christmas is just a happy time of year, I think. What about you, Vince? Uh, I'll probably have to echo you on Christmas. Uh, so, just being a military family, we were always pretty far away from all of our extended families. So, yeah. uh, usually the holidays were a good excuse to go back and see family or have family come see us. So, that was always a really good time of year to be able to see people that you hadn't seen in a few years. Uh, because of like whatever your moving situation was. So thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of the of Victim Meet Advocate. So we hope that uh, whether you're just on the cusp of your teen years or a loved one of a teen that you look for something like this, we hope that you can continue the conversation and help create a world where every teen's first love is filled with just that. So until next time, this has been Victim Meet Advocate.